What's up, Vibe Tribe? Welcome to another Wednesday night excursion into the mystic underworld. <laughs> I think it's the underworld. I mean, we did just go through the gates of Libra, uh, a.k.a. the fall. And I don't know what better topic to get into at this moment than the Egyptian goodness that we might be able to pull out of our returning guest, Jason Quit. Jason's been on Interverse a couple times, but never had the pleasure of a panel show on Vibrant. And I'm excited for the mind meld, especially with Mario and Jason, who I know are going to blow our minds and build off of each other's symbolic skills. It's going to be like a a symbolic martial arts sparring match, except friendly, not competitive. (laughs) We're just going to build it up. I'm really excited. So Welcome, everybody. Do us a favor. Send uh, this stream to somebody that you like that, you know, would be into this type of content. We appreciate that. I think that's the best way to spread it rather than shotgun blast shares onto channels and social media. And here we go. Let's talk it up, guys. Welcome, Jason. How you been, man? It's been a couple uh, months since we got to talk. Your new book came out back then. That was really fun. And I see you have an awesome new background. You're leveling up in life. How you been? Been good. I took the uh, entire summer off to renovate my basement. So that's what you're seeing. <laughs> Very good. Basement dweller. Yes. <laughs> He's in the underworld right now. I was just going to say that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Mario, we know how you're doing. You're always crushing mm-hmm. over there. We see you pretty regularly, but it's always good to have you back. You too, Slick. How's it going, brothers? Doing good, man. I'm stoked to be here. Um, yeah, the underworld symbolism, you know, there's always just kind of new layers to it that I'm uncovering for myself personally. So I'm stoked to get into it with you all. Uh, Libra season. It's a beautiful season. It's kind of enigmatic for me personally. Libra has been one of these signs where I feel like I've had a harder time wrapping my head around it. But I feel a lot of progress this season personally. So oh, man, good. you want to open with that? Like, what have you wrapped your head around? You know, um, I feel like for me, the the whole thing about Libra not being connected to a, um, you know, an animal or, or a person or a figure of that sort, right, was something that for me, I felt like I, I've always understood that to a certain degree. But now I'm really starting to very much appreciate it. Um, kind of like there's this calculated sort of aspect to Libra. There's like a precision sort of aspect with Libra, I would say. Um, and I'm just finding kind of like new correspondences with what Libra represented to other groups. So I've mentioned it before, but, um, at least according to one of my resources, there was a sky map that depicted Libra as a tower, the tower of Babel, which I find to be really fascinating. And so, um, that's very curious because, you know, the ziggurat is kind of like a tower of Babel sort of uh, symbol and there's seven layers to it. And here Libra is like the seventh sign, you know, of the Zodiac. Right. And um, just kind of the nature of Libra with uh, the scales, um, you know, the 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 falling essence uh, with Libra. I feel like I need to unpack this throughout the show because I'm already getting like, <laughs> you know, lost in my thoughts about it. But um, I'll uh, I'll pull out my my Libra sort of journal that I'm keeping right now. And uh, as kind of pertinent things come up, I'll I'll bring them up during the chat. Love it, man. And uh, I'm just going to sit back and let you guys riff off each other and, uh, you know, inter- intercede when necessary. There, there's a lot going on uh, with Libra and 
there are so many dimensions to it, like you said, um, especially the time of the year where, you know, um, coming off the equinox here, you have the balance, you have the 12 hours of light and the 12 hours of dark. And as we enter into Scorpio next, it's the death, you know, it's the, the strike on the ankle of Ophiuchus. So it's, or Orion, it's the death. So then, you know, you have the scales and then they, they shift going into the underworld. Um, but um, if you want to jump off right here, um, I have a slide that explains this perfectly. There you go. So here's from uh, the Book of the Dead, uh, the singer of Amon. And let me see if I could zoom in a little more. Or is that, that's all right. I think that's all right. You have Isis. And look at Isis. What is she holding? She's holding the grain of wheat. So when we talk about the journey to the underworld, the book of the dead, it's also um, a metaphor of the journey of the sun through the seasons or through the constellations. And so this was also a reflection of the soul because your astral body, your soul, when it leaves, it is the star, your North Star. You travel. You leave, you go to the stars and you travel through the constellations, go through the Milky Way, you go up into the northern heavens and return back to the throne. This is the, the path of the star, the soul, you know, whatever you want to call it. So you can see Isis is guiding the singer there and she's holding the wheat. So she's um, representing Virgo, which we just uh, came out of. And you can see they're moving into the scales and you can say that that is Libra. And there's also another um, dimension to the scales, which I can get into a little further. But then on, over there, there's also boots, um, the constellation boots, which is, which is the bull's leg. And what's interesting is the bull's leg is turned on its side, which is an astrological um, um, position in the sky. So as Osiris rises in the, in the winter sky, Boots Octurus turns. All right. So it, it, it's almost like Boots is giving an offering of the leg to Osiris, which is Orion. So you could already see just by just a simple picture from the Book of the Dead, what, what they're doing is they're actually hiding a motif of the solar motif of the sun or the dead spirit moving through the constellations. And they're being judged at Libra which is the cross. And this is the doorway, the cross into the underworld, which you could see on the Zodiac. You want to riff off that, Mario? <laughs> yeah, man, already there's several things to talk about. I'm sure Slick is lighting up right now too. And I know why. <laughs> Both days is his favorite. Leg, yeah, exactly. I just got to say, leg and hairy. It's legendary. This is <laughs> the leg and hairy constellation of Buotes. I love it. Nice. Okay, so first question I have is a lot of people with the uh, material that I've read have associated um, the bull's leg, the thigh of the bull, with Ursa Major. Is that something that you've come across as well? And do you think it's like, a, you know, it's attributed to both perhaps? Or what are your thoughts on that? I would say that um, it's very strange because there's another thing let me see if I could pull this up for you. Um, let me see if I could share this screen. 
Stop sharing. Look at this. I'm all prepared for you. <laughs> you're the man. Love it. While you're pulling that up, I have yeah. a quick question for you. Sure. I, in um, trying to decipher the Dindara Zodiac, which is a little hard symbolically for me, granted, I'm not an expert in Egyptian imagery. I think that in the place of Libra around that spot of the Dindara Zodiac is Khonshu as a divine child. Is that accurate? I'm going to have to to double check that. I don't know off the top of my head, but you have to also remember that the, the Dendera Zodiac is heavily influenced by um, Sumerian mm. um, astrological figures. So it's, it's a very, there's very much a mix. There's so many layers of time depth to Egyptian symbolism, depending on when the thing was actually made. Yes. Yeah, so th- this is um, a picture I put in the book, um, Tywert which uh, is holding the leg of the bull, which they say is set or, or whoever. And uh, this is Northern constellation um, iconography, basically. And Tywart is the, uh, the goddess who holds the leg of the bull. And um, everybody's saying, you know, is the bull Ursa major? Um, I would say Tywart, if I'm even saying that correctly, is Ursa Major because if you look up into the sky um, and look at the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, um, the last star, the the last star where you hold the Big Dipper points directly to Octurus in boots. And so this is um, a very ancient, ancient um, asterism where even um, um, where Ursa Major is bound to boots, the constellation, and holding it by the leg, which is Octurus. And the whole myth goes that uh, if that chain or rope breaks, the world goes into chaos. It basically lets loose the darkness of the world. So that's why I say that boots or the the bull of the leg is representative of um, boots uh, constellation. So do you think that's, Part, like, do you think the ancients were aware that in the area of Boates, there's a great void, like a dark patch in the sky? Essentially, they call it the Boates void. Um, I would think so, because um, there's a lot of um, iconography and symbolism where they actually depict this as the the bull, but it's a it's a red bull and it's like evil. And this is like kind of where we get this um, idea of the the horned devil that basically they're they're holding this devil in their chains and if they let go of this darkness will overtake the world you know so that's why tarwart tarwart sorry my first language is english they um basically it was the symbol of the guardian of the child it's the guardian of the stars the guardian of the northern world and it's the protector so uh, when you had this uh, goddess in the northern sky she protected the northern sky and the gods and that's why she was such an incredible um goddess back in egypt so i'm not a hundred percent on which tribe it was it's either the iroquois or the sioux right next to Buotes is the corona borealis and in that in some native american tribes that's called the bear's den 
the the bear den. And in some of my work, it's the bident. It is the pitchfork of Hades. It's the win the win the winnowing fork of Hades. And that they say in that Native American uh, mythology that that cave is the cave that the bears come come out of and go into for the for the seasonal shift here. And it does. It makes sense. Just like he's saying, if you follow the tail of the bear, it's pointing directly into that cave. Uh, so the so it is it's it's a uh, it's astrologically impeccable for these myths to roll out in the ways that they do. But I just find it fascinating that even that the word Bairdin isn't, it's an English word, but it still conveys the message that transcends language. Somehow it's preserved in the artifact, in the, in the, um, yeah, in the artifact of these mixing of tongues that are not so dissimilar as people take comfort in. Exactly. And that's what I love about diving into the uh, astrotheology aspect of all of this is that um, you can pick, I would call them civilization building cultures. And they all have this rich history of these myths of the gods and goddesses and their journeys, their epic journeys. So you can pick any of these cultures. And when you really get into um, these stories, and you pull them apart, you realize they're all talking about basically the same thing, just with different cast and characters, you know? So that's why it's like, uh, my whole focus was been Egypt, but then I'm listening to everybody else and they're, they're telling the same story. Universal system. Yeah. Gabe, you were saying the, you're saying the Bote's void is the cave of the bear. Uh, no, Corona Borealis, which is right next to it. If uh, if Boothes is Hades, because and it is, it just is. Because, plane sphere here. Yeah, man. Yes. Yeah. If that's Hades, he's got he's holding his pitchfork, or his it's a bident. It's a two pronged fork specifically, and also uh, Persephone is with him, and oftentimes she is holding an orb of some sort, uh, a forbidden fruit, which is round. And so that cave is also that that semicircle of Corona Borealis. It is a forbidden fruit with one bite taken out of it. Mm. And therefore it's a semicircle. And so the shape of her forbidden fruit is impeccable to the shape of Corona Borealis. Wow. So the fall happens after you bite the apple. Got that's it. what's that's what's up, buddy. And, and, and I think that that winter. cave symbolism yeah goes that cave symbolism goes back to uh or is also related to hindu symbolism with the cave of brahm or the cave of brahma being yeah so that's the yeah. astro theological location of where the yes. god goes into the cave for the down down yes. part of the cycle and then and then to make things really cool like that's cool but it gets really cool when we find out that that's the entrance of the cave and in fact uh, about three signs later, three days in the underworld, three signs later, we're going to pop out in another Borealis in Capricorn. Let me find it. It's the, uh, uh, give me a second. I'll dig it out. But there's an exit to the cave. So you go in in Corona Borealis. And you come out right there on JFK Day is when you come out of the cave 
And that is um, Orpheus. That's when Orpheus is coming, is saving his loved one. And she's walking out of the cave. And JFK's assassination was an Orpheus ritual. And J- Jackie was playing the role of Orpheus when she was climbing off of the, off of the back of that uh, convertible, which the word convertible is you switch the center syllable, it becomes contrivable. This is all contrivable. It's perfectly conceivable. It's inconceivable. So Jackie's playing Orpheus and she looks back at her loved one and he's swept away from her. It's a gender flip. So he is Orpheus's loved one. She is playing Orpheus. And when she's coming off of that limousine and he's, and she looks back to try to save him, that's pulling on our heartstrings forever. Those heartstrings are the harp of uh, Orpheus and the, guess what? The Lyra constellation is in reach. You just reach out and you're grabbing the Lyra to play the heartstrings of humanity. And what do you think the relation to that would be with uh, the hero twins, uh, Romulus and Roman? Or Romulus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or Remus, well, Romulus and Remus, sorry. Because they go and they hide in that same cave and then they right. emerge to, right. to found, uh, find, uh, found Rome. Mm-hmm. Yes. My my read on that is that the mother wolf is lupus, which is in Libra, essentially. It is. And, right it's, there. and we go into the into the darkness of the winter. And then it's a nine month gestation period where you wait nine months and you're going to pop out in the twins of uh, Gemini. And that'll be Castor and Pollux. And, I knew, I and knew it's you all, would get that. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> nice, nice. And 90, nine months is also a 90-degree angle, which is a cornerstone of civilization. You can't build buildings without 90-degree angles. So that nine months, 27 degree, 270 degrees uh, around the Zodiac gives you a cornerstone to start building Rome. And that's where you get the number uh, 270 from. And that's a very secret number hmm. isn't that a don't the elect don't elections require 270 votes to I, build up i think a new, i think there's the electoral a electoral college i think there's a 270 for the electoral college yep and elections are on leap years and leap years are votive offerings oh you need a majority of 270 to elect the president wow nice call man nothing gets past you I'm dialing it in, man. My worldview is like laser sharp anymore. Your your uh, constellation map in your head, I think, has a lot to do with that. Yeah, Jenny G's right. Everybody get your planosphere out. If you don't have one, get you one. They're cheap. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, um, there is something also interesting about... Um, let me see if I can grab this because... All right. Okay, so this is going to be interesting. So St. Gregory Tours of France, known as the uh, the father of French history, wrote that the constellation Cygnus is the great northern cross and referred to the constellation of Delphinus and Lyra as the Alpha and Omega, which creates a symbol of the Alpha Omega. Okay, so that's another thing. And I, I got you got to check this out. So here's a, a picture of Cygnus. 
And then underneath it, you have Delphinus and Lyra. And on this um, Christian iconography, they show the cross uh, with the lamb, obviously. And we know the symbolism of that with the two angels. But then on the cross, you have the alpha and the omega symbol hanging off of that. And um, you can see the Egyptian cross as well, where you have uh, the feather of truth and the heart, the vessel of the heart, which is also, in my opinion, the symbol of Delphinus and Lyra. What's, what's your take on that? Mario, how are you doing down there? <laughs> Good, man. That's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the relationship between Delphinus and Lyra, I don't know if I have um, too much to say about that off the top of my head. But that I love the the correspondence that you're making between the cross and then the scales just in general. That's really beautiful. Um, and when it's appropriate, I do have a couple of questions um, regarding the the weighing of the souls uh, sort of set up. And we were on that slide, you know. Just oh, yeah, yeah, ago. for sure. We can go back, you know. This is open. Totally, totally. Let it, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> so I interviewed, uh, just to kind of uh, the bull's leg business real quick, I interviewed a self-proclaimed Setian. I'm not sure if you're aware, Jason, but there are uh, a small number of people out there that actually revere Set, and that is like their main sort of um, deity that they acknowledge. And I was really curious about an aspect of Set having to do with a lot of this stuff is kind of more... Um, from the black magical tradition and it's more of a modern sort of lens of things. And that's where I'm kind of coming at it from. So I'm hearing things from modern authors. I'm not sure how diligent they were with their research. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but a lot of kind of magical type people, a lot of times they want to fit their correspondences into their worldview. Right. And so they make things, you know, kind of fit the way they see it. And so when I was talking to him, he does think that the, um, thigh of set or the thigh of the bull is a ursa major correspondence and he actually put tarot uh as corresponding with draco as well which is another northern sort of constellation so that was his perspective um and i totally understand and respect if that's not how you see it or if that's not what you've come across but i just wanted to throw that out there as uh the potential way that some other people are kind of looking at it at the very least that that's how i learned about it first oh yeah okay okay so i learned about that first and then as I kept going and going with this, it started like it started to make less sense to me when I started to just map it all out. Mm. Um, now, there's symbols of uh, the snake, for example, um, in ancient Egypt, where the snake is chained to the ground. Or the snake has um, daggers in the body, you know, and that. For me, like at first, you know, you think, okay, that's Hydra, you know, because it's the the water serpent in the, the underworld. It's under the galactic plane, um, the, the elliptic. Um, but the whole um, the whole motif is that Draco is wrapped around the North Star. It's around the pole, and because of that, it's basically nailed to the cross. You know, or it's stuck there with the daggers or it's chained to the northern star so it cannot move. Um, and this is also why I think, um, you know, 
originally, you know, was the chain holding Draco. You know, that was like an also an idea is was the chain holding Draco. But the more I read it was that the leg of the bull, um, the most important star is Octurus. It's so bright. You have the northern, you have Polaris, which is the brightest star. Um, and then you have Octurus. So these are very important stars in the sky for someone to look up into to to find the northern star. It's very important to need, know these constellations. You know, uh, I'm I'm wondering about um, uh, because Bootes is uh, uh, right in there with Hydra as well. I, I, there are like essentially, well, there's lots of creatures, but there's like Hydra is female, which is always helpful in the mythology to know the gender. And then there's a Hydrus, which is male, and he's down at the South Pole, and then Draco is up at the North Pole. And uh, and these things are always just good to kind of keep them all sorted. And then I, I include um, uh, Cetus as well as like a sea monster. He's not a serpent per se. He's like a something weird. He's kind of undescribable, nebulous. Uh, that's Leviathan. I think that Cetus is Leviathan uh, from Thomas Hobbes's writing, but um, but yeah, it's just helpful to know that these uh, the sea monsters, so you can sort them out as these as these myths come at you. And I, you know, as I was researching the book uh, through biblical texts and the pyramid text, I ca- I've come to the conclusion that Draco is uh, uh, the serpent on the crown of the pharaohs. Um, it's the Urus, Urus serpent. And this is what you get on your crown. This is the mark that you receive as you travel to the Northern stars to be one with um, the throne of heaven. So, and this goes back into, you know, all biblical traditions, they put the mark on the forehead means you're saved. Right. And that's the whole point is the journey of the soul through the underworld. You're trying to go to heaven. You're passing through all the judgments, all the signs of the Zodiac. And then as you um, go through that wheel, because the whole symbology is a wheel, then you travel northern because northern is the is the, the crown, your top of your head. It's above you, the most high. And that is when the serpent appears to save you at the top of your head. And it, you know, to go back to your Cygnus connection, the Cygnus is like a cross, right, in the sky. And in there's a great book called, I mean, some of it I, I no, you can't endorse everything that's in every book. I shouldn't even have to make that disclaimer. But Andrew Collins wrote The Cygnus Mystery. Have you read that before? No. So he has a theory about the Cygnus constellation being referred to in standing stones and temples and other monuments around the globe and also incorporating native American mythology in which there's this idea that upon death, the Cygnus, whatever is at the Cygnus constellation is like a guardian of the threshold that one has to go through to ascend to the next life or the next realm or join the ancestors. I'm not, it's been a while. I can't entirely remember, but that's, it's interesting because it's right in the vicinity. If I'm not mistaken, Cigna is 
pretty close, Cygnus, I should say, is pretty close to the same, uh, you know, it's above Capricorn, right? No, it, well, it is, but what this is referring to, which is like, he's talking about the path of the souls, is that Deneb, the head of uh, Cygnus, uh, lays right right um, in the Milky Way galaxy where you go into the, the rift. So it's basically the doorway into the Milky Way galaxy, into the dark rift. And this is the entrance into the underworld. This is the path that you go to the galactic center through the Milky Way. So uh, Cygnus is basically the cross or the bird that holds the gate to the underworld that you have to pass through first is is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. And that's the native or a lot of native tribes have a similar cosmology with Cygnus, interestingly enough. And when I bring in Capricorn in our comprehension of the Zodiac, we often will see Cancer on top and Capricorn on bottom being the gate of God and the gate of man, respectively, that I think Cancer being the gate of God, right? Mario, you feel like I've heard you talk about this before. Hold on, you're muted, buddy. Uh, you have to unmute. Unmute. Oh, can't can't unmute Mario. Ah, I'll just I'll pantomime what he's saying. He's saying I got to go to the bathroom, and I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway, the un, the gate to the underworld journey and Capricorn being at the bottom of the zodiac like that it makes sense. And this is the um, the key to um, also what I talk about in the book. It's the key of Cancer and the key of Capricorn. Because it's the tilt of the earth through the seasons. So, it, um, and the highest north, uh, it goes, you get the summer. If the sun travels to the 23.5 degrees of the north, you get the summer solstice. 23.5 degrees from the, from the equator to the south, you get the winter solstice. So, um, that's how we have the, the term uh, Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn. Um, because these are the two gates that the earth tilts into to give us our seasons. Um, you also have in the Greek mythology, the Iliad, there's a scene where Achilles has to battle with a son of Poseidon named Cygnus, or sometimes actually spelled or pronounced sickness because G and C sounds are interchangeable. The C, the gamma is the third letter of the old Greek alphabet. So that's interesting symbolism. This warrior Cygnus could not be harmed by weapons. He was basically invulnerable like Achilles. Well, I think he was able to be defeated by using a, a shield, which has probably got its own symbolism in it that's important. And he's transformed into a swan after he's defeated. But the it's interesting, the like echoes of synchromystic symbolism that come through even that might not have been intended by the original writers in the original language, but it ends up having meaning to us when we think about it through the lens of our language, or maybe our language the English language has older roots than we've been led to believe by mainstream academia. But the idea that, you know, Cygnus being, we go through to get to the underworld. Well, at the end of your life, you might go through sickness <laughs> You know, sickness, sickness, and it can't be defeated by sickness can't be defeated by 
you know, conventional weaponry. It's a, a difficult foe to best. Can you guys hear me by chance? Now Am I can. coming through? You're good to go. Okay. Yeah. My internet's so slow that even when I unmute myself, it doesn't seem to work sometimes. So uh, please forgive me. You guys can probably tell that I'm kind of going in and out over here too. But um, one of the things I just wanted to mention regarding the cross, kind of the new appreciation I have for it is that the cross represents crossing over to, to the other side, to the underworld or, or the great beyond or whatever you might want to say. And so when you look at the cross, um, the number four comes to mind immediately because there's four arms, there's four quadrants, right? Um, the plus sign is a cross. Um, obviously, all of the sort of relationships with the earth um, relating to the number four, four corners of earth, the the square, things of that sort. But the uh, kind of new sort of wrinkle that I have with the cross is that the five is actually encoded into the cross as well. And that the center point of the two arms that are crossing each other uh, it makes that fifth point and the number five and i would say along with that the pentacle or pentagram um, is emblematic or symbolic of being a bridge between worlds or between realms between the physical realm and the spiritual realm which is why i believe uh the duot symbol the, the if i'm not mistaken the hieroglyph or the glyph that corresponds with the duot is a five-pointed star and so that fifth point represents kind of like this ascension point beyond almost like this 2d plane or something along those lines so the cross in and of itself to me does represent cross crossing over and then i'm reminded of like the crossroads right or mercury too even having a cross its glyph having um its head and then the cross down below and it's very much related to this idea of the crossroads and everything else so just even the cross in and of itself no matter how it might you know uh, appear in the heavens or whatever always implies this crossing over sort of dynamic it's also um the tau which is, um, or the Tav, which is the last, um, which is the second or the 22nd letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the ending. The Tav, or the, it's also uh, represents the mark, the mark of God, which is the cross. And when they would um, baptize you um, in ancient times, they would put the Tav on your forehead. And then that uh, that tub became the cross. And, you know, the number 22 is very important, as you know, tarot, uh, 22. And also um, your skull. There's 22 bones in your skull, and that's bait. It's your head is the temple of creation where it holds all the archetypes. Um, and that's why um, where Jesus is crucified at Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They do that in, even in Mithraism. It might be, sometimes it's a Tav, sometimes it's an X, but it's actually, you know, kind of the same symbol when you think about it. Either like this or like this, but it's the crossing point. You know, either they're intersecting like that or they're intersecting like that. And, you know, where did the, uh, the serpent come out of to become a pharaoh? Same point. And that crossing point between the left and right brain, I believe in like Hindu mysticism, 
they call uh, the pineal gland or, or some, some point in between the left and right brain, the cave of Brahm as well. And there's practices meant to like activate that part of the brain to, <laughs> you know, gain transcendental awareness or abilities. So it, it makes sense. It's the third eye as well. You want to hear a very interesting thing? This goes to, to, to biology. So this is not anything to do with the stars, but it does have something to do with the stars. Um, you have, um, and what is it called? The, there's, it's the nasal cavity right in the back of your throat. There's a flap. Okay. So when you breathe through your nose, the flap opens and closes. So, you know, you can breathe. That's through your nose, right? And if you say the word, uh, use the syllable M, okay, very important, you know, like OM, the syllable M or N, um, that gate opens up, that cavity in your head opens up to resonate the nose, and that resonance resonates the cave of Brahma. It's the only syllable that opens up the gate of the nasal pharynx in your head to allow the vibration in the nasal cavity to reach the plate in your head vibration wise. So your oh. vocab word of the night, everybody is epiglottis. That's the name of that gate. <laughs> epiglottis. Wow. Uh, I got it. I'm, I'm getting so many pings. I'm getting so many pings. So, um, the Diction of Aries that I've done with the alphabet around the Zodiac plus the 10 numbers to complete the winter season comports to what you just said in a fascinating way. The M and the N are in Leo at the Lion's Gate. And when you just said that it opens up the pharynx, there are... There are two sphinxes. There's a hidden sphinx. The one we know is the, is the southern sphinx, marking if you're standing on top of the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, which this is all encoded on your dollar bills. Go at, fold up your dollar bills and put yourself on the top of the Great Pyramid. You will be looking down into the valley facing east, and you will be looking at on the Great Seals. This is so funny. There is the backside of two gigantic cats. And so this is the cat hole look. This is the cat hole look. If you're on the top of the Sphinx, you're looking down, you'll look to the, uh, to the um, winter solstice. That is the Sphinx that is present, that is there, corresponding to the left brain. And we are left brain dominant. The Sphinx that is missing marcates the Capricorn, the summer solstice. It is not there. And this is why people's right brain is so vacant. Uh, it's, it's, it's so vast. It's open. Um, and that is all encoded in the, um, in the layout of the, of the Great Pyramid. Uh, but I'm tripping because you just said the pharynx opens up when you do the M to the N, which is the middle of the alphabet. We're in the liminal space, right? We're opening uh, the M idol. The M, the M idol of the alphabet is 13 to 14. And this is all right here in the Lion's Gate of August, the M to the N. 
which is the Hydra in the Krator constellation, which it turns out Halley's Comet actually uh, back in 1887, it stirred the Krator constellation. It does a loop-de-loop. It stirs the cup on its path, or it did It did back then. I don't know if it does that every time, but that just hits because you said this, the, the pharynx. Yes. Opens the, up. the larynx, you mean? No, Larynx. the, uh, the uh, I'm going to have to look it up. It's a complicated word. Well, well, but that's yeah, actually it doesn't miss because we got we've got the lion is the you know the sphinx, but we also have the lynx constellation is just mm-hmm. a skip. It's just a skip up. It's right there. It's all there anatomically yep. speaking. Yeah, it's called the nasal pharynx, pharynx, which oh. the base of the word is pharaoh. Just to let you know. <laughs> Good times. I, I can't say I thought about my epiglottis for quite a long time, but okay, I'm going to look this up now. Epiglottis. <laughs> what are you talking about? We're talking about the little dangly thing in the back of your throat, right? Is that the, the speed bag? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, That's the speed bag about, that, right? that swells okay. up when you, when you get tonsillitis. So that thing is also interesting. Like symbolically, what do you think it means? considering that our anatomy and our astronomy are mirrors to each other as our geography is, you know, this fractality of nature, what does it mean with the function of the epiglottis, the speed bag dangling in the back of your mouth, as you put it, that it, uh, it protects the airways from getting your respiratory system from getting food in it. Theoretically, that's why that little dangly guy is there is so that, Air goes in the air hole and food goes into the food hole. And do you know why you have to breathe through your nose? It's because in um, the cavity of your nose, it treats the air for your lungs. So it puts the humidity into it. It's the, it's the water. So everything is alchemy. All right. So you have all these different elements. And when you have the air coming in, it has to mix with the water before it enters the lungs or else it causes a dysfunction, you know, and and the mouth is not really capable of doing that job. It's the nose that does it. So that's why they say when you meditate or when you want to do it, go into altered states, you have to breathe into each different nostril. And uh, if you breathe really fast and bring a lot of oxygen in your circulatory system is going to go nuts. You're going to open up, uh, your vascular system have circulation. When you lower that breathing, you enter almost instantly into the alpha state of consciousness. So if you learn how to master your breath through your nose, you master states of body consciousness. Syrinx in classical Greek mythology was an Arcadian nymph and follower of Artemis, known for her chastity. Being pursued by Pan, she fled into the river Ladon. I have a feel, feeling five-gallon fill-up here is about to comment with the rest of the myth. I like but, the Our chat is awesome yeah. <laughs> in these streams. They've got and so much to add. The river. Oh, my God. I have like a whole chapter in the new book about the river. <laughs> uh, uh, that was the, what I was just reading and taking notes about before we got on the stream. The stream. <laughs> <laughs> right uh, about all of the sculptures of certain gods that have like a, a syncretic correspondence to each other osiris neph krishna 
being depicted as black or like carved out of black marble or some kind of dark blue potentially and how all the other words for the Nile river in other that other languages would call it by all signified black and the an indian word for black is nilo so long story short there's very strong reason to believe that the river was associated with or you know back to the waters thing <laughs> you need the waters mixing with the air properly crossing into each other that the uh, the river itself the nile itself was considered a physical representation of the deity in the tradition and that there's a potential too and i don't i don't know where my receipts are on this but i know i've i've come across this that one of the earliest potentially uh, cross uses where <laughs> it was to mark the points of the annual inundation of the Nile. And so that inundation was crucial to life, which would make sense that they would correspond to their deity. That's their savior and preserver of life with the river. Um, could I, could I jump in on that? Definitely. All right. Um, what they say or what's uh, what they say is that um, when the soil is black, that's when life comes back. All right. So Osiris is the fertility of the land. It's it's the bringing back of the waters of the Nile. So what you have the opposite, which is the desert, which is red. You know, the red sands is death. So you have black, which is life, red, which is death. All right. So you have these two different color. Uh, symbologies. Now, um, if you go to um, Samaria or uh, the Akkadian um, statues and, and art, you'll see the, the tree of life and you'll see these gods like Shemesh um, or these other gods like the Anunnaki holding buckets of water and their arm is down holding the bucket. And then one arm is up with a pine cone right? Or um, a seed. And everybody's like, okay, what does this mean? Well, uh, the tree of life, these are the gods of fertility, by the way. So basically, they're carrying the waters of life in the bucket because the basins fill during this time of the year. And then, so you have the the element of water. And that's why their arm is down to the ground holding the bucket because it's the basins, the water flows down. And then the next arm is up in the air holding the seed. And if you go at that time of the year when um, the start of the spring, it's when all the trees, the pine trees, the coniferous trees, they pollinate the air. It's really bad for allergies <laughs> because the whole air fills with pollen. So you have the two elements of life. You have the air, which carries the seed, and the water that is and that puts it in the fertile soil to create the tree of life or feed and maintain the tree of life on earth. So there's a lot of misconceptions and it gets really crazy into conspiracy land of what these symbols are, but it's so basic when you really think about it. Yeah. uh, Am I coming through? Yep. 
Awesome. Uh, I think that's the first time I've heard that those are buckets for water. <laughs> I've always heard way more uh, extravagant kind of far out theories about what they're actually holding and things like that, because sometimes they kind of look like little purses or something like little uh, bags or something like that. Right. Um, but that bucket, that does make a lot of sense for sure. Real quick, I just wanted to mention regarding the nostrils, as you were talking about this, I was reminded of Gemini, the two nostrils, Gemini, sometimes uh, people correspond it with the breath, right? The two lungs. And then um, as you were saying the air and water kind of connection, it came to mind that Gemini, um, their feet are dangling in the Milky Way galaxy. And so sometimes the Gemini twins have been depicted as their feet kind of hanging out in the waters, hanging out in a river or a stream or something like that. And so it's kind of just a curious connection with all the things that you brought up that uh, I kind of see this Gemini correspondence with that. But I love that stream of thought that you had with all of that. I thought that was great. Of course, Bach is similar to the German word for stream, Bach. Uh, Another fun one. I wanted to throw into the mix on it too, is that the uh, Greek word for the 365 day solar year is Nylos. So, you know, that 365 day cycle that the Nile river has is crucially important. And uh, I, where I read that, they also stated that that word in the Greek gematria equaled 365, but I haven't gone and, you know, verified that. You know, I, I dig that. Um, uh, C-O-N in English is a 365. So all things con, uh, congruent is like uh, in shared space. We've, we come together. Just C-O is 3-6, makes a circle. You know, you put the N and it becomes a, a calendar. Um, but, uh, I wanted to mention uh, Nilo is uh, anagrams into Yoni. When you soften the L, it becomes Yoni. And those two brothers having their feet in the same river, uh, they come out of the same Yoni as well. Um, and the the black earth uh, brings forward the terra preta, sacred, sacred, sacred soil, the terra preta, uh, which is fertile. And I love uh, what we're doing right now. All of us right here, we're all dancing barefoot in the terra preta because we are interpreting, we're interpreting the heavenly soil, which is rich with meaning. It is rich with meaning. And you can put seeds in that uh, every year, like what Mario does with on his channel. He masters one, one station at a time. In the next year, he comes back and there's a forest growing that he has all this fruit to draw upon. Uh, so I just wanted to put the terra preta in everybody's mind because we're having a great time in this forest of interpretation. I love it, dude. That's awesome. And uh, I just wanted, I wanted to comment on that too. This uh, black equals life sort of business. And I think this is very relevant for 
the uh, portion of the Zodiac that we're, we've now entered into and where we will be until Aries season. And so I very much see the dark side of the Zodiac now, the night side of the Zodiac, um, as being the root system of the Zodiac. And so Aries through Virgo, light side, day side, I would even say more solar. And then I would say that we're entering more into a stellar root side sort of ancestral portion of the Zodiac. And so it's no mistake that during Scorpio season, as an example, is when we have Halloween and the Day of the Dead. Right. So people consider this to be a time where the veil is thin and that you can commune or communicate with your ancestors, you know, and things like that. So people leave out offerings and and whatnot. And so uh, I very much see a, a very strong connection to um, the root system and uh, ancestral traditions, basically, and that we are now entering into the root side of things. This is when the roots get deeper, too, and get stronger as well. Right. So as the leaves fall, as uh nature kind of lies dormant or whatever underneath the earth within the soil itself it's getting stronger oh mario you're so awesome that's <laughs> you're so awesome <laughs> you too, man. man that is great that, that like so the veil is thin well the availability for what is on the trees is less and less uh you know things have dried out uh there's yeah you you don't have the agriculture and so you go into the earth to get these fruits out of the earth. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, One of the most plentiful foods here, I'm probably most of like the eastern part of the uh, continent at this time of year, specifically at, around the fall equinox is the black walnut that falls right around the fall's kickoff. So there's your black symbolism again, too, because right. that's going to give you life throughout the winter. You can preserve that for the whole winter and gather so much like it's abundant as as all get out. Yes. And this gravity as the veil is thin and we go, you know, we go make offerings at the grave sites of the ancestors. And they fall it, off the trees with gravity. With gravity, <laughs> but, right? But, every, but everything is symbolic because mm. you take this the seeds of life. You know, the, the fruit uh, of from uh, the last season and as it dies and falls, the squirrels take it and they bury them in the ground. Just as you yourself, they say it's whole, when you die, you bury yourself in the ground, just like the seed to feed and continue life. Um, but you, yeah, that's that's a really fun thing to think of that uh, these animals, especially birds and uh, squirrels. Um, they basically plant the forests, right? Yeah, you, you know, I got a, I got a, a fun read here on this exact point uh, with that image that you had that we had just looked at with uh, with the ba balancing of the scales. On the one side, we have the grains of Virgo, which is the harvest, and at the and then as on the altar, the table as the offering table, which. Altair, Ara Altair is a constellation uh, right down there at the winter solstice. That table is even a constellation, right? So it's like there's nothing, there's nothing without meaning in that image. But what is on that altar is meat. And so once all the harvest and the grain is done, it becomes hunting season. And this is where you're going to need uh, the animal. You're going to have to feed on the animals. And also you're going to need some nice clothes 
you're going to need some new digs. So you're going to get the skins from that animal as well so that you can stay warm in the wintertime. And I, th- I think that this is also corresponds to the sacrifice. So bringing the lamb to the altar, bringing the cow to the altar to the gods. And this was the, the time of year where this is where the sacrifices took place. And then over time, that obviously got uh, changed to something else. But I think originally, everything, like you said, was done on a time schedule. Not to mention when Libra is rising on the ascendant, Aries, the ram, is disappearing on the western horizon, being sacrificed or sacrificed. Put, put to death. Yeah. And, and this is like the, uh, the hunter in the Zodiac would be Sagittarius, right? So in totally. the uh, dark side of uh, the Zodiac there. Jason. Oh, we just lost him. <laughs> <laughs> We're dropping like flies. We'll, we'll wait for that question. But what, what I love is this, this uh, understanding of the sacrifice or the slaughter. And back in ancient times, um, oh, good, you're back. You can ask your questions and then I'll, I'll get into that stuff after. <laughs> right on. Feel free. If you're starting to get on a roll or whatever, you're more than welcome to continue your thought. Well, I'll just say this for you, too, is that um, what I found in the ancient text is that uh, whenever they talk about um, the sacrifice or the slaughter, it had to do with the sun passing through the constellation. So when the sun is in front of um, Taurus, for example, the sun sacrifices the bull because it's invisible in the sky. You can't see it behind the sun. And it's the same thing when the sun enters Aries, it sacrifices the lamb. You know, so um, when I'm looking at uh, Native American things, and they're showing like around harvest festival, you're, you're, they show like uh, these shamans holding like severed heads. And you see this all over the world at, at, at uh, harvest time is like they're hunters, but they're holding the heads. Uh, and they say, okay, you know, they're, they're warlords, they're killing people. Symbolically for me, it's, they're hold, it's showing the, the death of nature. This is the harvest. It's like the heads of corn or the ears of corn. They're, they're, the, the land is sacrificing itself for you so that you can survive the winter. And that was the whole point of the harvest. Wow. That brings to mind a few things. That's really interesting. I just, in my mind, just saw the word land. And as you're talking about sacrifice and the lowercase d, when you just flip it, it's... It's close. It's not lamb, but uh, land and lamb, you know, I don't know. There's something kind of there potentially. Um, But the question I wanted to ask is uh, has to do with Thoth or Thoth. And um, I just as of late, I have found so many new correspondences that actually bring and this tends to happen with symbolism is that uh, when you start seeing the similarities over the differences things really start coming together and the lines become extremely blurry. And so I have extraordinarily blurred lines between symbolism related to the moon and symbolism related to Mercury. So much so that it's like blowing my mind on an almost daily basis. And I was reminded because I always, you know, refer to Mercury. I see Mercury everywhere, mercurial symbolism. And I'm always quick to throw out Hermes and Mercury and Thoth, Thoth as being part of it. And Thoth was a moon god 
And in the weighing of the souls um, illustration that you brought up, you know, he's up top and he has that crescent moon on top of his head. So I would just love for you to maybe um, kind of expand on his relationship with the moon, how you see that kind of playing out. And uh, I guess any other insights you have with that, because I'm, I'm really intrigued with this mercurial lunar sort of connection that I'm digging into. Even again, the glyph for Mercury has those horns up top, arguably, you know, a crescent moon. And even um, this is more of a normie thing, but the moon and Mercury look very, very similar. And there's articles and videos of people talking about that, just like visually how similar they look. But they both relate to cycles and time and movement. There's a watery thing. Uh, both they both zero, correspond. Silver, silver, exactly. Yeah. Currency, you know, and the symbolism related to money and all these other types of things. So if you have any opinions about that, I'd love to hear it. Just, just in the sense of uh, the moon, I would say, um, is the goddess. The moon is the unconscious. The moon is the first place that the soul goes to in its process through the underworld, it is, it is met. And Mercury is the messenger between the worlds. All right. So Mercury takes the messages from the gods and passes it down through the moon to us. So there is this kind of relationship between Mercury and the moon. I have to go down that rabbit hole a little more. Um, but I know that in Egypt, Toth um, is represented the moon. Uh, there's basically stories about uh, Toth uh, challenging the sun Ra to add more days to the year to for creation to start. And uh, Toth being so smart, he wins and adds five other days. So you have the 360 uh, calendar and then Toth wins and asks Ra to give him five days outside of that. So you get the 365 day year. And so Toth is credited for the creation of all the gods. Because it was, um, um, who was it? Nut and Geb. So you know the the image of Nut and Geb, where you, Geb is the earth and Nut is the the sky, and you have Shu holding them apart. Well, Shu holding them apart is actually uh, a punishment. It's a punishment because when they're having uh, too much fun, there. That's right. Because when they got together, creation happened. Right. So when you had the two spheres come together in a union that was the birth of the creation god so that's where you get osiris set isis uh, nephesis um, horus this is where you get the creator gods through their union and toth and um, ra was so angry that he put shu which is again shu and tefna what is it that's the air and the water they put them in between the canopy of the sky and the earth and it's it's never lost on me that our shoes disconnect us from the earth if they're rubber sold. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, so um, basically the moon is the most important part of creation because it basically controls the waters. It controls everything on earth. And without the moon, there would be no life, no currency, no tides, no nothing. Um, it's and also, I'm sure, like a earlier timekeeper than solar time. Yeah, it's a more obvious timekeeper. Now, I'm going to put this out here because we're coming. We just passed this time of year, so I'd like some feedback on this because this is stuff that I just think about that I don't talk to anybody about. <laughs> um, 
but basically um, in the Jewish religion, like we just had Yom, Yom Kippur, and before that we had Rosh Hashanah. And uh, the Jewish religion is based off of um, the moon. It's a, it's a moon calendar religion, just like many other ancient religions. And as I was going back into these scriptures and reading about it, is uh, the moon was in Taurus when they received the Ten Commandments. So the, the, uh, the literal start date of the Jewish religion happened in the full moon of Taurus. Uh, and they left Egypt, they escaped from Egypt in um, the full moon of Aries. All right, because it was the full moon they were able to see at night, and that was the signal to leave Egypt. So, so even when the, the moon's full in Taurus, the sun is in Scorpio. Interesting. And when the moon is full in Aries, the sun is in Libra. So you're saying the Exodus was in Libra or the sun in Libra. You know, another thing my wife was reading the farmer's almanac last night and it really become, when you look at that thing, I, I mean, she was reading it to me. I wasn't looking at it, but when you look at that sort of thing, it becomes very apparent how the old systems were so heavily dependent on the moon that most of the advice that is given about when to do what is about the moon being in a certain sign, not you know, that's like the most important thing for agriculture. So to me, the the prominence of the moon in terms of like the foundations of all of the systems of society has kind of been overlooked in the industrialized world where technology kind of allows you to force things without having to pay attention to the way nature might want you to do it. But there's tons of gravy in like what is a waxing moon in in Gemini mean versus a, a waning moon in, you know, another sign. And what, like the, the farmer's almanac is listing like everything, the best moon to quit smoking to the best moon to harvest, to prune crops or, or plant or all of the above. Like not, not even all of it was agriculture. It's, it had like all kinds of start this on this day type of advice and all revolving around the moon. I, I did. I did that. I, um, a couple seasons ago, um, took some seeds, you know, you can guess what kind of seeds I live in Canada and I, I planted them right in the, uh, the spring equinox on the new moon, new moon, spring equinox. I planted it then they all sprouted. I didn't have one that didn't sprout. All right. They all sprouted, which is very rare. And then, um, I harvested them on the uh the full moon um in september in um in the next equinox so i i did that and i'm telling you this stuff is 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 magical <laughs> yeah magical stuff so uh, da- uh down in belize i learned that the uh, the trees that get harvested on the full moon require no treatment for pest resistance, and they live as much as 18 years longer than the trees that they harvest on all the other wrong days. 
And this lends to kind of fighting off the, like you were talking about the industrial age. Well, that's all relativism, right? There's a lot of relativism in that industrialized age. Well, the farmers are like a loss of meaning, you know, it's like, oh, it's meaningless. What day you do a thing on all days are the same, right? It's like the homogenization of everything. Totally. And the farmer's almanac smacks all that in the face and says, no fool, there is a right and a wrong way for so many things and give thanks and fuck you, Benjamin Franklin at the same time, (laughs) because he gave us the farmer's almanac. You know what I mean? Uh, And one, also an interesting thing about Benjamin Franklin. Really? He's the originator. He's what uh, the proliferator, maybe not the originator, but he had a printing press though. He was putting it out there. Yeah. And yeah, he was just, that's a point in the positive column for old BF. Didn't yeah, we have uh, a lot of secrets in his basement. Yeah, yeah. about ten, about ten or so. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's like yeah, you got to you get you just keep in score. We're keeping score on that bastard. Um, <laughs> well, it's an, uh, but, it's an instant lose when you have dead children in your basement, right? Right. Uh, but one thing that's interesting about him in the we keep idea world. Uh, he is a Jason. That's quote code for Wikipedia. Yeah, we keep ideas. Wikipedia. He he's preserving the ten days that they moved out of the calendars. If you look into Benjamin Franklin's birthday, it actually uh, maintains the fact that they added ten days to the uh, to all the calendars somewhere, which really scrambles things when you have to go back uh, past a certain point. You just always have to keep in mind that, oh, yeah, they added 10 days. So you think you're impeccable with your with your math. But then Benjamin Franklin's always there in your ear like, nah, we kind of fucked with that. So, Mario, I wanted to add to what you're saying about the symbolism of the moon and was it Mercury and the moon kind of yeah. collapsing together, basically? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I've said this a bunch of times. And I'll say it more times, but when you, as you were saying, looking for the similarities over the differences, when that is your path and you just keep voraciously consuming mythology, symbolism, linguistics, et cetera, you're able to essentially collapse down into about three characters, all of the gods and goddesses, and then those collapse down into one. (laughs) And Another part of the problem or the confusion that comes in is how to the ancients, when they were giving a myth about, say, Mercury or Hermes, they might not have been talking about the planet that we call Mercury. Because, first of all, they might have been it might have been in terms of astrotheology referring to uh, a constellation or it might have been referring to the sun or it might have been referring to Polaris. It depends, but eventually, essentially, like I kind of look at the um, the entire heavens as the pleroma or the psychodrama of God's entire imagination. And depending on what part of the story you're focusing in on, you know, and the sun being like the actor who's playing the characters at each station, it's really one story <laughs> inside or it's just it's all these characters inside one mind is how I look at it. And that's why they all collapse down to the same individual whenever you keep zooming in or zooming out, depending on what the case may be. But some of the other names for the planet Mercury, which are 
good to know. The Greeks called it Stilbo or Stilbon. And of course, Hermes has been a name attributed to that planet. Um, but it's it was also called Buddha. Buddha is Mercury in the Eastern systems. And the uh, Teutonics called him called that planet Woden. So the oh, wow. right, just right yeah. there shows you the syncretism between Buddha, Odin, and Hermes. If you, but but the similarities between Hermes and Buddha are are too numerous to list. As soon as you have the whole thing about their names of their mother being Maya for both of them, we're done. <laughs> it's the same guy. Right, right. Well put, man. No, exactly. Um, so even I last time we talked, I'm pretty sure is when I brought up the um, Hermetic Cross. Right. And then you have that crescent moon down below. It's like a cross with a crescent moon down below. Right. So there's so many examples. I think I'm going to do a presentation on it at some point. Um, but I wanted to mention something regarding uh, Nut or, or Nuit um, and Geb. Right. And so obviously, Lady of the Heavens, Queen of the Heavens is how I interpret it. Um, and she has stars within her body, clearly creating this nice large arch and then connecting down below with Geb. This makes a dome, right? And so it reminds me very much of firmament symbolism. And it got me thinking that, um, and I had been chewing on this for a few days, but is the glyph for Libra, is it supposed to be symbolic of scales or is it actually the firmament itself? And if some of these other correspondences with Libra is correct, and uh, perhaps it was a tower, is that tower the world axis, you know? And when you look into scale symbolism, I was surprised to see that the world axis was brought up multiple times. And this idea of a still center or a sacred center um, also was brought up multiple times. And so the most important part of the firmament, in my opinion, or the dome, dome symbolism, is that top point, is to me the pole that stretches symbolically from the uppermost portion of the dome, symbolic of Polaris, uh, the pole star, right? And then the pole going down to the North Pole. So are we actually looking at uh, kind of a uh, a map of this domain or a, a small glyph that represents kind of the bubble that we live within the uh, firmament, the heavens, and then also uh, the ground floor. Um, I wrote uh, a chapter of this in uh, the book Astral Genesis, where I took um, various symbols or hieroglyphs of uh, Nutting Geb and, and Shu. And they're all very different. And uh, let me just see if I can pull this up for you, because this is, um, it's going to be hard to explain this. So hopefully you'll be with me on this. Uh, where is this? Here we go. Uh, do you see this screen? Is this it? Yeah. Okay, let me just uh, find this chapter here for for everybody. Uh, while while you're looking that up, I want to mention uh, one of my reads on the Libra constellation is that it's not like you were saying, not really the shape of Libra at all. I think it's Corona Borealis again. I oh, think it's yeah. I think it's that semicircle shape, and it's barred off. It's saying no more forbidden fruit. 
So the bite that's taken out is the top part and the bar is, is, uh, is the law saying what not to do. Thou shall not. That's my, that's one of my many reads on, uh, on the, there are quite a few constellations or glyphs that they tell you that it corresponds with the main constellation, but I have strong sense that it's something just off the periphery. They're just a, a few degrees. Uh, they're not lying per se, but they're, it's, it's a chance to expand your, uh, your understanding, uh, yeah, it could be construed as misleading, but I think it's just telling you to keep on learning. I think what you're saying has a lot of merit because you get a lot of mileage out of expanding your idea of the Zodiac. Once you kind of have those signs and that circle mapped out in your head to start looking at it more like a big pie in the sky and divide that whole pie into 12 rather than just focusing on the band of the ecliptic and see what is in the same slice with the zodiacal sign you're considering and you get yeah then you see as you just put corona borealis is right there in the same slice of pie as libra and that glyph could have some correspondence to that shape that corona borealis is that's a great call all right well I, I know you're looking at this on your screen. Um, I can't really get into the geometry because it's a little complicated just for the show, but I'll just show you this simply. But we okay. did cover that really well on uh, last time you were on Interverse. So people go look up Jason Quit Interverse and they'll find it. Uh, perfect. So you see how Geb is on the ground and his arm is just basically touching the floor and his leg is right on the floor of the earth. And in this original picture, he's actually, um, um, he's either black or green in this picture. So this is my interpretation is uh, when I put in all the, uh, the geometry, it's showing you that this is summer solstice geometry. So when, when the summer uh, solstice, the, the, the sun is the highest in the sky. So it's the altitude of the sun is the highest in the sky and the earth is on the ground. Okay. And then as you get to the equinox, you can see how uh, Geb is starting to rise up. His arm is no longer on the earth. He's starting to come up from the earth like he's awakening. And um, and Nut is actually coming closer to the ground. So you have all the this equinox geometry in this image. And then coming to the winter solstice, which is the uh, the wet season, Shu is gone completely. And you can see that this is, uh, Geb is right off the ground with an erection. She's joining for the creation. And it's winter solstice geometry, which is the wet season. So do you see what I'm getting at here? Is that each symbolism is a time stamp for the time of the year. So you can look at the different images of Nut and Geb, and you can also see the symbols of the hat of shoe. So if you see, um, there's this one thing here, he's wearing this very specific hat, which is the equinox. And then when you come up here, it's the feather. So as the, the, the crown changes, the symbolism changes, the altitude of the sun changes the earth. So it's, it's very complex, but basically it's, it's a map showing you the different times of the year and what that means in the creation story. Very yeah, cool. and the, the circles that you guys are seeing on the screen, 
That is the solar key that Jason discovered in ancient sculpture and symbolism, referring to those all important points of the solstices and equinoxes. And, uh, you know, in a nutshell, for something we've covered more in depth in the Interverse episode, that solar key is his theory and uh, he has a lot of evidence to back it up is that that's embedded in a lot of ancient art and sculpture to, like you just said, show you what time of year is being uh, described by the allegory of whatever the artwork is, which makes total sense to me that that you would do that because all of the, all of the mythological system is about, you know, on one layer is about the time of year and what, qualities of nature are expressed in that time of year and when you're looking at that winter uh third one with uh, gab having uh, a raging boner yes <laughs> it's a really big dong so it's like they they made it that long unrealistically long or they were just very well endowed back then to uh to actually give that ratio of it was the circles it, that you show here well it was actually um in uh, relation to the cubit. So that's why it was that length. Remember, there's, there's secrets in all these images. So it is made by the cubit and the solar ratios. And this is how I get the solar ratios. You can see that um, this is the, um, the yearly path of the sun for 30 degrees latitude of Giza. So this is where the summer solstice sun is, equinox and winter solstice. And if you draw a line from the top to the horizon on each of these points and you draw a circle to measure that, you get these solar ratios. So this is the path of the sun over the entire year. And then this is what it looks like as a ratio from solstice to equinox to solstice. And when you take that key, um, well, we get into all of that fun stuff, but when you, we get into that key, you'll find it hidden in uh let me try to just get through this wow <laughs> a lot man. of information yeah that this is, is yeah. Uh, his book astral genesis jason's newest book great yeah. read so wow. here we go here we go this is why I'm, I'm just kind of scrolling for you here um if you look at uh, shamash and what he's holding he's holding the cubit the rod because that rod is the exact measurement from the base of his elbow to the top of his finger so that's the cubit measurement but then this circle around what is this? So if we take the solar ratio from 31.3 degrees of Samaria, and we take those circles and put them together, check this out. It matches perfectly to the ratios of the circle that he's holding in his hands. And if you want to take that a step further and take those ratios, it actually is exactly the same ratios that you find in their symbols of their solar symbols, Ishtar, Crescent Moon. It's all based on the height and the ratios of the sun in the sky at that latitude in the sky. Man, uh, Jason, I want to, I want to share an offer. I noticed those are at the touch points, those sacred circles and those ratios are where the characters touch and the word touch uh, has a lot of uh, translinguistical consistency as uh, tokar is to touch and it's also to take and it's also to play a musical instrument is to tokar 
And so the fact that you're speaking of it as a, as a mathematical ratio or proportion, it has musical consistency in our language still. Yes. The tokar in the touch, in the, in the, it's basically to strum. And, that is, a, and that's the magic, because um, in the book, what I talk about is uh, to find your sacred geometry, is to find your sacred resonance. And if you can measure from your cubit, the base of your elbow to the tip of your finger, and you get that string, now cut that string up in your ratios, and you have your sacred uh, vibrational tones just for you. You know, you're yeah, creating that, your that own reminds instrument. me of how in the uh, ancient Chinese dynasties, when a new family or dynasty would be instituted, you know, out with the old rulers and with the new, they would actually, I don't know if it, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably a similar or related system to what you're talking about with the Egypt and the Royal Cubit, but they would measure uh, these type of ratios from whoever the current emperor or ruler was. And they would even apply they would apply that to so many things but they would also apply it to instruments gabe they would apply it to uh they would they would create a flute that was the length of that that ruler's royal cubit if you will and that would become the sound that would be produced from a flute of that length would become the new tonal center for music in the dynasty like you were legally obligated to play music at that with that tonal center. Otherwise you were breaking the law. You were breaking the divine harmony or uh, yes. you know, the order that the cosmos was decreed by the heavens to be uh, governed by, which would be right. that, that family. And, and that even was carried on in Rome where in Rome, they would just call the, the epoch or the age and they would just name it after the emperor. You know, it would be like the second Flavian, yada, yada. So like the time was also measured by the name of the boss man. Right. Yeah. Chance, I've heard you talk about that before. Uh, it's really fascinating to think about. And, um, you know, we in and of ourselves, we are measuring tools. Right. And so I've, I've mentioned this before here, but uh, my understanding is a lot of words that are M vowel N go back to the moon. And so minute, right, month, and even man or men, menstruation as well. And Don't so forget we menu, the menu, uh, menu, minos, um, all I mean, manus, I could go on if I had the list in front of me, but like all cultures from around the world had a lawgiver who had a name with a variation of that M to N, like Minu or Manu. It's also nice. the symbol of water. That's M right. N is the symbol of water. Exactly. And it's exactly. also so, when you have when you have the M or the W for woman, it's the M turned upside down. It's the um um you have that shape down there between your legs. <laughs> Indeed. <You know? laughs> right, right. So we are measuring rods because we are poles. We are people, you know. And so to me, this all just kind of lines up and fits. And um, in the book, uh, the code, the actual like secret code and key for this entire book is um, the perspective, the ratio from your eye to your hand from your outstretched arm. That's the key. 
All right. So when you're, when you're putting your hand in front of your face and looking your eye to your palm, just like the Hamsa, you know, the eye in the hand, when you look at your hand to the horizon, you're measuring time. It's 15 degrees, one hour of sky. So you are the measuring stick of the sun and the moon. And depending on your, your mudras, you know, whatever the mudra is, is a measurement. These are degrees to measure the stars in the heavens. So you can just put your hand out in front of your face and measure time and space. That was the secret. One thing that is popping into my head right now is you showed that Shamash image where he's holding that circle with a line, (laughs) you know, and that symbol, of course, reminds one of one and zero you know, that idea of binary, the pull in the hole, the masculine and feminine generative powers, and also I-O or Yo or Ya, depending on how it was pronounced, one of the oldest names for the supreme being out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, also that line and circle, in, I've been really like uh, kicking around the possibility lately that it encodes pi, like the ratio of the circumference to the radius of a circle. So as you're talking about being able to use your own ratios to measure the cosmos, it makes me wonder if they're also trying to tell you about, I'll bring that image back up now, trying to tell you about uh, pi, either that it's this constant transcendental or that if you know, if you know your own ratios, I I wonder if, uh, you know, you could use your body to do something like measure the circumference of the realm or figure out how far from the center of creation you were. Big, big stuff like that. Chance, I just got a download off of the radius of circle, ROC. That's a 963, buddy. Uh, a lot of uh, the 369 is on my radar with the Enneagram, but ROC is a 963. Radius of circle. Uh, and that is a sacred sequence of wording that, you know, to the geometry that is uh, that is required to get into the temple of the Pythagorean order. And while we're speaking, while we're speaking on things written it's also on the key row, <laughs> radius of circle, CRRC, the nice, symbol of healing. Nice. He's holding it in his hands. You know, the mystical laying on hands for healing was called the Chirotonia. Right. And then, you know, and that they name these temples after heroes, right? They have Pythagorean, the, the Delphi, the uh, Apollo. Uh, and something we've been talking on in the past five minutes here is the, uh, the Temple of Delphi uh, phrases. You know, I've, I'm, I think it was Crow that added from what we all know that know thyself, I'm pretty sure Crow slipped in an add on to that, a missing second half to that first phrase that is in thy proper proportions. Know thyself in thy proper proportions. And I think that has been truncated on purpose because the proportioners are the fates. And I think that is literally a, uh, a castration. You're the ratio of your caste, your class system, you don't get the whole phrase. All you get is know yourself. I think the elites have uh, have 
kept the in thy proper proportion to themselves because it leads you to understand the fates, the three mortere better. And then the other two phrases on the same temple are nothing in excess. And the last one I think is the most important, especially since insurance is running the world right now, gone completely amok. The last one is surety guarantees ruin. And that temple is in ruins today, and it makes you wonder, did they start fucking around with insurance? Is that what brought is that what brought Greece down? I gotta add one thing to that, Gabe. You know, you just brought the fates and the proportioners, if you will. Uh the ancients would call the wandering stars, the planets, the disposers, as they were disposing our fate. I've been kicking around the idea that the fates may correspond to the planets in mythology or like, you know, secretly. Um, And it's so interesting how back to this idea of hypercorism and it being a symptom of like a imminent, imminent destruction of a society or a recently destroyed civilization. Hypocorism being when words begin to have a common usage or understanding that is the opposite of their original meaning (laughs) and disposer as a word that used to be applied to the planets is one of those words that has an, a a hypochorism to it because it originally meant uh, it originally pertains to arranging things, controlling, regulating, putting them into order. And now, you know, you think about your garbage disposer, it's the most disorderly thing possible. It just scrambles it all into a, you know, it's pure chaos. It's not arranging anything. So I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah. Uh, for anybody who uh, isn't on the, the weave about hypochorism, it's a, it's a touchstone. It means a touchstone or a pet word. And a great example, my favorite example is the word overseer. Back in the days, the last person you want near in your life is the overseer uh, in today. And then generally it's after a, a civil war that these words take on, uh, they lose their edge. They become, uh, uh, they, it's like a pill. It makes the pill go down easier. And so the overseer to after the civil war became the officer. And that's the first person people call today when things are bad, as though that's going to make it any better. I think we're kind of catching on. <laughs> But uh, my theory is that the uh, hypercorism, I believe that this is why Atlas has to shrug. He's holding up a boulder. Well, when it started out, when when the meeting of the minds was capable, when we made the contract of this country, that boulder, that safe space that he's providing uh, uh, a meeting of the minds, uh, uh, it's a symposium, really, where the masters can agree on things. Well, the rock becomes so rounded out, it has no edges, and he doesn't have any way to hold it up. It becomes so cumbersome that he has to just let it fall. And uh, one, another example of a hypochorism, I believe, is love is love. And if you just accept that love is love, then you can swallow that pill. And the next thing you know, there's a plus sign on the end of the LGBT, Elemental, P, Q, R, S. How many add-ons are we going to have? And if you read the fine print, they're trying to slip all kinds of poison past your radar. 
So we, if we let that word round out too much, then we don't have a firm definition, a firm grasp on what is acceptable and what is not. And one of the things that's not acceptable is the MAP. You know, they're trying to put the male, a minor attracted persons at the bottom of the subtext where nobody's going to read because we don't follow the terms of the agreement to the bottom. If you look up hypochorism right now, you'll see it being defined as to call something by pet names. Look into it a little further. It, they might tell you that it's referring to a, adults speaking like babies. <laughs> but at its core, it's the infantilization of our language by us saying the opposite of what we mean, essentially. And uh, that's how we're using it anyway. It might not be the way you're going to find it now, but like old 18th century linguists would be on, you know, would be using it the way we're using it. And now I think Jason has something he's uh, he's ready to share here. I, I forgot already, but I'll try. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so basically, this is uh, Toth, and basically um, Toth is also the god of measurements and mathematics and things like this. And you can see when you start to measure his body, it has all these dimensions of the stars of the sun, and it's showing you the twenty three point five degrees. Um, 15 degrees, 10 degrees, the cubit is hand, 45 degrees, you know, everything is wrapped into this. When you go to um, Shemesh and what we were talking about before, if you put those same lines from the base through his fingers, it's the same thing. It's 23.5 degrees and 15 degrees. This is 30, by the way, it's not 15, but um, 15 degrees is um, the division of space. Okay. So that's the hours of the sun which is measured by the hand, remember? And um, the 23.5 degrees is the tilt of the earth in the seasons. And as you can see, this if you just look at this image of the symbol of the arm, the cubit, and the circle, it's the same symbol as the ankh, the symbol of life. So all of these are hidden in the geometries of all of this. And we can get really complicated, but... I want to show you how this works. So this is an artifact from Egypt. Um, very old artifact. Okay, this is about 6, 000, almost 6,000 years old, right? From Egypt. Now check this out. If you draw a line on his head, this is 23.5 degrees. All right? How is that a mistake? It's not a mistake. From the base center of this image at 15 degrees, which is the same thing as the movement of the sun, goes through these images here, which is this, these are symbols of the sun. These circle within circle is the symbol of the sun. And you can see that one symbol is smaller than the other one, and one's at a different height as well. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Um, so when you get the solar ratios here, this is where the path of the sun is during the summer equinox at 25.9 degrees north in Egypt, this line is the same angle as the artifact itself. So the artifact itself is a, um, a timestamp or GPS coordinate of the exact location and time showing you the solar coordinates of the sun and the mysteries of the sun in the object itself. And everybody looks at this. They have no idea what this is. They just look at it and they go, wow, this is a really weird thing. You know, why does this crazy person look like this? 
it's the same thing with the Hamsa. Okay, this is almost 12,000 years old from Gobekli Tepe, Gobekli Tepe. If you take the ratios of the sun, remember the eye and the hand, this is very ancient stuff. And you put this ratio on top of the hand, it's an identical match for the location of where it's found. All right, so we have a very, very ancient understanding that goes back about 12,000 years of how to measure the heavens using your body. And they created artifacts all over the world for this. And I, I think this is what I really wanted to come on your show and just hammer in that there is another dimension, a, a geometric uh, astrological language that's encoded in objects, artifacts, paintings, designs, everything. If you go to Egypt, every single line, every single line in their imagery is done to these dimensions. So whoever created this system were super geniuses. All right. You are a reflection of the heavens. You're the measuring tool, like Mario said. This whole thing is based on the arm and the hand and the solar ratios. It's the combination of the solar ratios from the equinoxes to the solstices and their relation to your hand and, and arm. And those measurements are encoded throughout this entire image. Um, so, yeah, that's what I wanted to, to share there. So, floor is yours. <laughs> that's amazing, dude. That's really cool. I mean, clearly you put a lot of work into this. Is this following kind of, um, are there other authors that are kind of um, talking about some of this stuff? Or is this mostly your perspective and work and everything? No, this was entirely like, um, I'll call it a rediscovery. And um, so that's why I'm, if you go on my uh, Twitter, which is basically all the, the social media I have left now, you'll see a bunch of ancient artifacts with all these lines through it. And I'm just kind of uh, blasting all those things out just so people could say, you know, what is Jay doing? Uh, what are these images he's posting? But um, I have hundreds of examples right now from all over the world going from Leonardo da Vinci to um, the Americas, Central America, South America, um, to Japan, to China, to all over the world, showing what I just showed you. They're, they're encoding these degrees very specifically of the movement of the sun and the stars in their artifacts and in their paintings. And that's related to the myths and that we've been talking about with the stars and the, the sun moving through the 12 constellations, each has a story of the path of the soul. So all of that came from this understanding of how the sun moves in the sky in relation to our body, which is the template. The other fascinating thing about your rediscovery is how it is location specific. If you want to expand on that again. Yes. Yes. So for example, if I take um, the solar ratios from Peru, which is South of the equator, the solar ratio is very different. It looks very different. And then when you put that solar ratio on the artifacts found in Peru, it's a perfect match. If I took the solar ratios from Egypt and I put it on the artifacts from Peru, it doesn't match at all. So it's like they knew 
about these things back then. They were taught about these things and they passed it through the artifacts. And um, this stuff wasn't talked about to the general population. It was, this is like secret society stuff. This is like the priesthood or the pharaohs. Um, They would pass this information and then initiate them into the understanding of it. And so it's, it's in plain sight. Everybody can see it, but it's invisible unless you know the language of the stars of the sun and the geometries. And it shows how you can have a, it's like evidence of how you can have a universal system, but the artifacts look different from one geographic location to another, yet it's the same system. You know, part of that might be because they needed to change the proportions just to fit that geography, which is, is a cool, it's a really cool thing to consider. And on on that subject, there is a super chat earlier that hopefully she's still around. But she asked if how, she's in Australia and she asked in the southern hemisphere, how do we relate to creation being opposite to the northern hemisphere? She feels lost about that. And I don't have a great answer considering I've never even been <laughs> to the southern hemisphere. Uh, so I don't know. But Jason, you've been looking at things from different angles. Do you have a, a good answer to that? Um, it's just the opposite. It, it really is just the opposite and it's different stars. So you have a different um, South uh, pole star. Um, but most people live above uh, in the Northern hemisphere. And this is why um, everything is so heavily influenced by Northern hemisphere mythology because a, a lot of our uh, history and mythology comes from different civilizations in the Northern Hemisphere. And this is why you don't find a lot of mythologies relating to this exactly in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, I have a question, actually, that might be kind of basic, but I'd love to hear your take on it. So one of the things that I've really been thinking quite a bit about is um, the different symbolic ages. So a lot of people who are interested in astrology, they'll talk about the procession of the equinoxes and the great ages passing, right? So age of Aquarius, Pisces, you know, et cetera. And I've been looking into the idea that there have been three major symbolic ages. And I just want to know if you have the same understanding or if it's not that simple or if you have a different sort of way of looking at things, but that we currently live in a solar age. Previous to the solar age, what Chance mentioned earlier, uh, there was a lunar age. And then previous to the lunar age, there was a stellar age. Um does that kind of fit with how you tend to look at things by chance or is that not kind of part of your worldview, I suppose? Um, I, I look at it as um, the different ages as in um, the age of the bull or Taurus. So you would go through the age of the bull and then you would go when that age ended and they left Egypt, it was the age of the, of Aries age of the Ram, the Ram's horn, and then Christianity age of Pisces. And in each age, which is 2,000, uh, 2,600 years, um, basically the world does end or the, the house ends, house collapses, and we, we get rid of that old thinking pattern and move into a new age. So that's why everybody's like, okay, we're going into the age of Aquarius. It's the new age, all this fun jazz. Um, but historically, 
those are like end of time days. That transition between one sign to another was the literal death of the theology. And then it was a bringing on this new um, archetypal, you know, whatever you want to call it, but um, it's, it is basically a new age, new religion, new thought. Um, and think about it, um, we're in this technological age. And if we continue on this path, think of in a hundred years from now, um, I don't know exactly when we're going to be entering into um, Aquarius, but it should be within the next hundred years. By the Roman reckoning, it was actually in the uh, 1700s. Hmm. Because if we would go by the date of um, Christianity, where they marked it zero, right? Technically, if if we're starting at zero like they did, um, we would go into um, basically 2,160, mm. give or take. So within 100 years from now, is that's where that transitional period will be, where we're actually shifting from Pisces to Aquarius. And, um, and what is Aquarius? It's the water bearer. It's, it's enlightenment. It's, it's giving you the flow of everything. Um, so from, from where we are in Pisces. Electricity, you know, it's the electric age for sure. Right. It's so if we continue on this path without blowing ourselves up, which is quite possible, it's going to be basically an AI future, um, transhumanism, things of that nature. Um, if we continue on this path and we make it, <laughs> you know, another way to look at it too is the uh, the connectivity that is established the circuitry of Aquarius, all of that idea. It could also be in the reestablishment of natural circuitry. You know, our, because I see society going the direction you just said, but then I also see parallel societies splitting off where people are returning to the land, forming their own supply chains, being independent from the, uh, the main system. But Mario, your question about ages in the context of solar, lunar, stellar, it made me think, you know, you're, you're referring to the prominence of those luminaries in maybe the, uh, the esoteric thought or the priesthood at different junctures of human history, right? Yeah. And it makes me think of, we, <laughs> we do, you know, if we've been on a descending path for a while that, uh, you know, in that sort of yugas idea that, Perhaps all the way back in the stellar age you're talking about, we were at a heightened level of consciousness where we could see in the dark better, so to speak. And because I, I wonder all the time, like, how did who how, who were the first people that looked up at all the little dots in the night sky and said, that's a herdsman, that's a, a liar, that's a, a scorpion, that's a that and then could tell a story that was reflective of all of nature's process and divine harmony and order through the symbols that they were seeing coming to life in the sky. And anyone who's had like expanded consciousness experiences for any reason might've looked at stars or looked at light and seen more than was there whenever they were in a more baseline level of consciousness. So I, I wonder if like, you know, the stellar age was 
the stars were more prominent at a certain point because mankind could look up there and read it like a book or mm. uh, gain information from it almost like a, a a psychic internet, if you will. Yeah, that's sure. kind of no, that's an interesting at. thought. Because where else would all this have come from? Like you, humans who came up with this stuff had to have had a, a very different consciousness than your average uh, TikToker. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Can we move? Can we move the placenta onto the table real quick? <laughs> One hour, fifty-four minutes, seventeen seconds. Is it? Is it too late? It's never too late, is it? Um, so I'm a I have a, uh, a fun theory that uh, placenta phagy instills many senses that we've that we've completely forgotten about many, and I'm talking about breathing underwater. I'm talking sky's the limit. And while we're at it, let's mention tetrachromacy. It's uh, a whole nother spectrum of visual sensitivity. And there's even such thing as pentachromacy. And synesthesia. Oh, are they zapping me? Yeah, you're not allowed to talk about this, dude. Oh, they don't like this. Synesthesia is a huge secret. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big secret. But... So if you have these abilities to see in a whole nother aspect, I'm thinking you can not only read auras and uh, you can also probably. Uh, the sky's really the limit, but I imagine that eclipse when an eclipse happens, there's probably a level of sensory perception for people. Oh, they're taking me out. Bye bye. <laughs> Uh, it makes me think of uh, last time I looked at an eclipse. Yeah, there's definitely some consciousness but shifting going on there. What what you were saying earlier is um, it has to reflect life on Earth, the constellations. You know, so let's say there's the the rainy season where the water's flow in the Nile gets um, inundated. So then you have the water bucket, Aquarius, you know, uh, the time where um, the light and dark are equal. Um, and then you're passing judgment. Um, and like uh, Mario was talking about earlier on his, uh, his show, I just watched his show today. He was talking about uh, Libra uh, weighing grains from Virgo. You know, that's genius because that's what they would do at that time of the year. So there's this, this mirror reflection of what is happening on Earth because there's a, a physical cycle that you have to do like you say, uh, the herdsman, the shepherd at this time of the year with the, with Aries, you know, there's, there's certain times of year. So they say at this year, if this is where we're going to see our flock, then that system and stars in the, in the sky, we're going to reflect it to this. So it, it, there is a kind of synchronicity between the myths and what the constellations became in their mythology. I, I think that's my, no, opinion. absolutely. There, there, there's a lot of practical information embedded within these myths and within these different signs and everything else. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, that's the whole value of it is <laughs> getting you out of like the type of, uh, I don't know, like churchy and dogmatism believe hard enough versus actual practical wisdom that can be applied to your life. I mean, that's where, yeah, to me, that's where the value is. What you and can this, learn about nature and yourself. And this is also the the start of the understanding where we get into alchemy, 
where we get into the magical practices. If you don't have this understanding, how are you going to know that stuff? Because everything in the alchemical process, the planting, harvesting, the um, magical process of rituals and festivals have to be aligned up to the stars, the sun, and the moon. You have to know that stuff. So uh, I see well, Gabe coming back into the chat here. I just got to point out, you know, this is something uh, Gardner has given a, a a name to, and I want everyone to have a name for this phenomenon because you'll notice <laughs> it it occurs in life in a consistent basis that whenever there's something like you're having reflection with another person or you're having this elevated or expansive moment, your consciousness is shifting, you're about to like really pop off with an epiphany that uh, something something comes in to distract something comes in to interrupt whatever it may be i mean for me i've had it be as as mild as like gabe disconnecting right now versus a black helicopter showing up you know it can it can happen across all the spectrum but the word for that for everybody now we have vocab for it so we can id it it's a taco so if you're ever about to have the great epiphany and is about to happen. And then boom, it gets blown up by some interruption. You got tacoed. Now, you know what to call it. <laughs> nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good to know. I'm okay with that. Watch out um, for tacos. It's a real thing. I was just going to say real quick. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Oh, no. Uh, just regarding the, um, I know uh, this was a few minutes ago or whatever, but the solar lunar stellar age you know this is hardly a proof but it's very very interesting um in the major arcana in the tarot you move from the 17th card which is uh the star card to the moon card to the sun card and i think these three cards accurately depict these three major symbolic ages and so the sun card generally has a child on it because it's the most recent age. It's it's the, it's the current age. It's the youngest age. And then the moon card has this gateway, right? And we, you mentioned that the moon is like this gateway, this first gateway. That's my understanding as well. It's the first gate out, which means symbolically too, it's the last gate back in hence cancer being the gateway of man. Um, and then in the stellar age, it was way more feminine. And so um, there you see a large star and a woman about to take a ritual bath. And then you see generally seven stars surrounding that main star. So the stellar age seems to me like it was more feminine and more passive related to the night sky. And the star is fairly large, but it's kind of small. And then you move on. This is uh, referring to older tarot decks. Then you move on to a larger moon and then an even larger sun. And of course, the sun is very radiant. You know, it kind of um, commands your attention in a lot of ways. But I, I do wonder if what's being encoded with these three cards are these three major symbolic ages. So just thought I would put that out there if I haven't mentioned it on uh, Interverse before. No, I, li I like it. I like that idea a lot um, because it has to do with the mapping of the sky. And if you, if you go back, you have, the, let's say, the stellar age where you're literally, you need to map the stars to navigate the world. And then after you figure out the world, you navigate the world and understand the stars, then you have to understand the seasons, which is the sun and the moon, or the moon first, and then the sun. Uh, and if you actually go back, you'll realize that uh, the, um, even in um, in uh, the Bible, 
the moon takes place over the sun first. And it's the same thing with uh, in Egypt. And that, that's what um, Toth came before the sun. Toth came before the sun in a lot of these myths. And he's the moon. So, you know, logically, it doesn't make any sense. Right. But um, esoterically, um, that can make perfect sense. Right, right. And when you're looking at just the stars of the heavens, um, excluding the fixed stars, they all revolve around one main star, right? And so to me, there's a um, sort of important aspect to the northern sky, which I've talked about on here a million times. Um, But to me, I do wonder if the seven stars that are surrounding that main star in the star card, if it's a reference to uh, Ursa Major. So just a thought. I haven't haven't come to a, a conclusion yet to that uh, specifically but i know that um as the ages change changes so does the pole star um so you know if you go back four thousand years it's thuban and draco if you go back even further it goes back to uh stars in hercules and vega and, and things like this um and this is why um there's so much serpent symbology in our ancient past is because um, that North Star was in Draco. You know, so you have the serpent symbology everywhere during that time. And when you have Polaris come, that's the light. You know, it's like you go from this darkness, very faint star to Polaris, which is the light of the world. And this is like the new age, the new coming of light and killing of the serpent, because you move from the serpent to Polaris, which is the light. Uh, So there's lots of, symbolic things in time where they actually switch um the ages like from the ages of the serpent to the like the fall from eden basically you know the golden apples of hercules these are these are all pole star references um the tree the serpent and uh you know with the golden apples there's many golden apples (laughs) and just as it turns as the world turns uh each age has a different golden apple Got it. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure what I think about. Um, I mean, I don't know. For many years, I just assumed like yourself that the pole star was changing. And uh, now I'm meeting people online who have a different opinion, whose opinion I respect to have uh, this idea that perhaps it's always been the same pole star. So I'm not sure exactly where I personally stand on that. Um, but uh, what I was going to say, though, regarding I wasn't these... there. <laughs> yeah. What was that? I wasn't there for for precession oh, you know like uh right. it's all stayed the same in my lifetime you know we get to well, just take it we're taking people's word for it from uh from books but it is it is pretty consistent in a lot of ancient writings sure that, that description but they're also you know it's a big game of telephone nobody's got enough of a lifespan to ever see that actually happen um what i was going to say regarding these seven stars of versa major right there is an amazing correspondence that I see with the seven stars of Ursa Major, the seven traditional wandering stars, the the uh, traditional seven planets, and then also the seven stars of the Pleiades, uh, the seven sisters. And so 777 is kind of like a thing. And so I'm like, is it a reference to all of these three different systems? Is this a kind of a triune of like septenary 
star symbols, essentially wandering stars, Ursa Major, Minor, and then also, um, you know, the Pleiades, because the overlapping sort of symbolism and mythology between all of these things um, is pretty incredible. And even there's some cultures that have literally related the seven stars of Ursa Major to the seven um, wandering stars as well. And so anyways, it's just a fascinating thing to kind of consider. Um, if you want to go to the slide uh, chance. All right. So here's the Northern sky, right? And then this is basically uh, if you took, talk about the procession um, of 26,000 years, it goes around and right now we're in Polaris. So this is our North star. What I find really, really interesting all right, is if you go back 11,600 years, you're like right here, okay? That's where the pole star is, is right here. And in the epic in Plato, where they talk about Atlantis, they said um, the destruction of Atlantis happened, or where Atlantis was, was outside the Pillars of Hercules. So here's the Pillar of Hercules, and the pole star would have been right there. Mm. 11,600 years ago. So I thought that's an interesting connection. If you go back and you, you look at it allegorically to the stars of where Atlantis was, maybe Atlantis, he was talking about when the pole star was one of the pole stars in Hercules, you know, because if you go back even further, you know, you're talking about uh, Gobekli Tepe, um, the pole star would have been Vega. And you see how Hercules has almost like this, uh, swirling quality to it the way that so there's yep. more than one way to look at the to draw the lines for the stars of the constellation hercules that way is more like a spiral or the whirlwind where mm -hmm. you have a lot of these gods that ha are having to do with storms or winds right and um the other way of drawing hercules is like the kneeling figure with the vajra the thunderbolt Thor characters, Zeus, uh, etc. But this version of Hercules, it's interesting what you're saying that uh, an age where it was closer to the pole, because that gives you the idea of it was already encoding Hercules constellation astrotheologically was all has always been encoding the uh, the primeval chaos from which everything is formed. And so we go back a long time ago and it was actually at the tops and everything swirling around it. All of a sudden it makes a lot more sense why that constellation has retained that secondary attribute of not just being the storm God, but also being the chaos or the whirlwind through which creation comes. It's very yeah. interesting. And, you know, if you look at, um, I think it's called Tau Hercules, which was the pole star at one time. If you go from Tau Hercules to Thuban, look at how much time. This, this is thousands of years where there's no fixed pole star. Thousands of years. And this is a very faint pole star. All right. So it's very faint. But, you know, it's the tale of, of uh, Draco. And then from Draco, about 4,000 years ago to about um, 100 AD, that's when we really got into Polaris. You know, so this is like the start of Christianity. This is like the savior of the world. The light, you know, kills the serpent. Um, so it, it is kind of like the story of this, uh, the serpent around the tree. Absolutely. 
Yeah, no, I agree with that wholeheartedly. It, it makes so much sense. Um, you know, I had a friend I was talking to about some of this stuff with, and she just brought up the idea of what if the pole star changing is actually what's being referred to when people say pole shift, you know, this was more of a thing in like the nineties and like two thousands and stuff, pole shift material books and, you know, things like that. And so, There's but she was just wondering. Catastrophism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so she was just wondering, it's like, is this the real pole shift? If this is actually a thing that the pole star actually does change throughout time. I wanted to throw something um, really quick, Mario, you were bringing up like the seven, seven, seven. And I just wanted to mention shout out to Cody, who's in the live chat right now. He put in the vibrant call in line the other day, this short article that lists out a bunch of, (laughs) a bunch of things in the Bible relating to the number seven and basically in Genesis one, one, this is the part I wanted to share. There are something like 30 ways to look at the, that one verse that give you some kind of encoding of the number seven or multiples of the number seven through Hebrew gematria. And uh, the article is claiming that math professors attempted to write a sentence essentially that encoded the number seven this many ways and they couldn't do it even with computers. So the article is saying that that's like proof of divine authorship or divine inspiration. It's all just HTML text on a screen. I can't prove that no, any uh, Harvard professors actually did that test, but it is, there is a lot of sevens in the gematria in Genesis one, one very interesting. For sure. Um, Absolutely. If you, um, Oh, I don't even want to say this, but I just did this on my computer as you're speaking. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to share this. Um, We're here for it, dude. This is Vibrant. Oh, yeah. It's on the fly research. At, and I'm doing, I'm literally time. doing this on the fly right now. So don't judge me. This is how we All do right? it. I'm, you're <laughs> yeah. vibrant right now, dude. I just took, I just took, um, I just, there you go on the screen. I just took uh, four sevens and I rotated them, right? And yeah. this is actually, if you, if you do that and you rotate this, this is exactly what the 23.5 degree turning of the earth is for the seasons. Mm. You know, if and you those just, four sevens give you 28, which is a lunar cycle. A month. Oh, there and, you go. And you know, this is like one of the most ancient symbols ever found on the planet. It's hate. It's, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's just a seven. Or 28. Well, I mean, you probably already know where my bias is. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of the idea that uh, perhaps another angle for the swastika is Ursa Major kind of makes like a seven and then yep. it goes around the pole star, right? And so if you kind of take a snapshot of Ursa Major around the pole star once every season, then you're going to have these four sevens making a swastika, which I think is kind of intriguing too. Yeah. And um, I, I know th- that I know for a fact that that was used, especially in North America. So the natives would use that as a symbol for um, the passing of the seasons. And it's the same thing with Cassiopeia. You know, mm. uh, Cassiopeia changes from like a bow to a W to an M, you know, in the sky. So you have this this turning of Cassiopeia that you can know when it's spring, summer, fall. Because these are northern sky stars. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, totally. Um, this reminds me of uh, something that I brought up to Chance forever ago now, but there's a tool that is seen in the opening of the mouth ritual. I wonder if that's something you've looked into at all, um, but it's an ads tool, I believe, is yep. what it's called, A-D-Z-E, and it kind of looks like a number seven. And so to me, I just think it's a really interesting sort of uh, correspondence with the fact that when I first read about it, it was explicit in the material that that was a reference to Ursa Major. But what do you think about that tool or that shape or that symbol? I, I tried so hard to connect those to the stars. I, I tried so hard and I couldn't find like, cause it wasn't the same shape, even though it was close, it wasn't the same shape. And I know that there's um, hieroglyphs where it shows stars in them. But when I put them to a star map, there was like no matches that I could find. Um, so I don't have a definite answer yet. I know it's a mystical tool. I know that it's um, supposed to break the jaw open, basically, to allow the, the spirit to come through or the mm. ka to be released. And then they would have obsidian blades to basically sever the uh, the silver cord to allow the freedom of the ka to, to take flight into the... So there's a whole ritual yeah. uh, based in this opening of the mouth ceremony. Um, but... I want it to be um, Ursa Major because um, it fits into that whole mythology of the soul leaving and traveling through the, um, um, because Ursa Major Major and Minor is also the chariots. Correct. So basically it's, uh, this is your vehicle you know, this tool is your vehicle to be released to the Northern stars and it's your guide. This is the pointing guide to take you to the Northern stars, mm. which I find fits perfectly um, esoterically into that, like perfectly. I just wish the tool was actually a copy of the constellation. Right. Know? Right. I gotcha. Uh, you know, th- this is, I'm not making this as a claim, but one area that or one constellation that kind of could give you that shape is coma berenices and the uh virgo constellation is right below it boates is right next to it i know in the sumerian system virgo was uh, the the name for virgo actually came potentially came from i should say john McHugh's work shows this in a pun in their uh, cuneiform for the word furrow, that the name for that constellation was a furrow, which is like a trench dug in the ground, which uh, an ads tool would actually also be used for that as well, or something just like it to like, it's kind of like a a hoe. (laughs) So Virgo is getting, getting hoed, you know, (laughs) the furrow right next to her Boates, who is the herdsman in the uh, Sumerian Babylonian system. So that's possibly, you know, opening the mouth of the earth. That's just one interpretation that to me pops into my head as I'm pondering that question of like, where is the ads tool in the sky? And that's kind of fun because that's where we just pass through in the uh, solar 
year. And, and that's why I didn't include it in the book because it's like I'm trying to like get like exact matches where it's like you can't deny what I'm showing you. <laughs> um, sure. But um, the I, thing I, about symbolism is yeah. in astrotheology is like one idea is probably up there three times or four times, not just in one spot. Right. Right. So that I'm going to look into that. Um, yeah, there, there's what I love about this topic is there's so much to it. Um, I still feel like I know absolutely nothing in this topic. <laughs> so I'm just a child playing and trying to figure it out. All of us. Yeah. I hear you. It feels, man. feels yeah. like a good place to uh, make our way to the wrap up. If you guys are cool that I know we're having fun. We're just feels like we're just getting warmed up, but Oh yeah. Uh, we'll no, do it again. It's all good, like, man. Jason. Anytime you want to come back, you've been looking into something you want to bounce off of, of us, uh, fellow researchers. We'd love sure. to we'd love to hang with you again, man. This was great. Sure. Yeah. I want to come back maybe after uh, November, uh, because I've solved the, uh, Leonardo da Vinci last supper and it's pretty amazing. Oh, I'm totally in. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. You guys have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I just want to piggyback off of what you just mentioned right now, Chance, with the furrow. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and let's not forget that Ursa Major, which again was attributed to the ads tool, to me looks very much like a number seven, uh, is probably most predominantly known, besides being the Dippers and the Great Bears and Little Bear, the Great Bear and Little Bear, as plows. So these are plows going around, you know, um, the pole star. So adding to this trench, adding to, you know, sowing seeds into the ground and everything else, it just kind of all lines up that way. Um, but no, dude, this was a great time. Jason, thanks for your time and answering my questions and things like that. Hopefully we cross paths again and uh, I'll have to check out your work more and uh, your books and everything else, man. I'm super intrigued. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just happy to be here. That's that's all I can say. Uh, the book that we talked about a lot tonight was this one, which is called uh, Astral Genesis. And that we got a uh, whole episode on it in the archives from earlier this year, people. So Interverse, Astral Genesis, Jason Quit, type all those words into a search engine, you'll find it. And then uh, Egyptian Postures of Power, which is all about mysticism and body movements. That's where I get into the astral theology and mysticism about it. Um, and that's what led me to these discoveries in Astral Genesis. And not to mention, postures of power apart from the like the wild personal story of how you discovered <laughs> the postures yeah and like being you know teachers in your dreams and all kinds of fun stuff which we talked about the first time you're on interverse you can also google that people i want you to check out both episodes if you like jason uh you pick up that book postures of power and you'll learn some easy gentle movements that will help your circulation of your vital life force energy to a lot better than, uh, you know, your average self-help self help book off the shelf. This one's actually self-knowledge, and that's way more help. Really good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So well, we'll do it again, guys. Check out The Crystal Sun. Or is it just Crystal Sun? TheCrystalSun.com. And uh, you could check out my doodles on Twitter at Jason underscore quit. <laughs> I put a lot of doodles. Yeah, I was looking through those today. Uh, Mario is at symbolicstudies.com and I'm at interversepodcast.com. Hit me up for uh, some sound healing tunings. The Honestly, the schedule is getting kind of 
booked out. So, you know, if you want one this year, I would say look into uh, getting getting yourself a tune up. It's they've been great, and it's starting to kind of like the schedule's kind of filling up faster now because more people have tried it, and then a lot of those people are wanting round two or three. So, you know, <laughs> if you want to get a tuning. That's all I'll say. It's it's worth your time. Chance at interversepodcast.com if you want to just email me and ask about it. Uh, I think that's it, guys. We'll call it here. Jason, let's be in touch. We'll have you back and talk about that Last Supper mystery, Da Vinci Code, fun stuff. Mario, you know you're always welcome around here. See y'all later. Much love. Thanks. See Bye. you guys. Take care.